Philly Built is brought to you by phillyzoning.com, which is powered by Anastasio Law, a boutique real estate and zoning law firm in the Rittenhouse Square neighborhood of Philadelphia. It was a little easier for me in the sense that I was a council president and, and Mayor Rendell and I had probably a, as unique a relationship in the city as any council president and mayor has ever had. Uh, and so uh, I, was a, I was just short of being a part of that administration and so it was easy for me to transition into the mayor's office uh, and pick up right where, uh, where Mayor Rendell left off. Hi folks, welcome back to Philly Built. Now, as you know, Philly Built is uh, brought to you by phillyzoning.com, and that's our website that's powered by my law firm, Anastasio Law. We uh, handle zoning, permitting, LNI compliance, uh, real estate matters in the city of Philadelphia. And we get a ton of emails from all sorts of folks, uh, questions about Philadelphia zoning. Uh, sometimes specific questions, sometimes general questions. And today we figured we'd uh, open up the inbox because it's uh, been quite a while since we've done this. And uh, Joey and I are going to uh, present the questions as they've been presented to us at the firm. And I'll do my very best in answering them. So sit back, sit tight, and get ready for the phillyzoning.com inbox everything you've ever wanted to know about Philly zoning coming up next on Philly Built. Without further ado, I just want to kind of get right to them and see if we can set these up and knock these down for the folks. So here's the first, here's the first one. Uh, I am leaving for a job in NYC, but I want to keep my house in Fishtown. Can I get an Airbnb type permit to rent to short term visitors without going through the nine-month variance process? Well, the lawyer answer is maybe. Uh, if you have a home in the city of Philadelphia and it will remain your primary residence where you occupy it for at least six months out of the year, then you can, in fact, go online and apply for and secure a limited lodging permit and no variance process required. If you are leaving for another city and not, uh, there's no intention of coming back to Philadelphia uh, anytime soon, um, let alone having Philadelphia as your primary residence, then the limited lodging path is really not open for you. At that point, you would have to pursue through the variance process, uh, unless it's zoned an upper level CMX um, uh, number. But if it's just a regular single family home or a regular, you know, residential multifamily, you're going to have to go through the zoning process because what you want is the category visitor accommodation, which for all intents and purposes, turns your home or apartment, uh, apartment building into a mini hotel uh, that will, will in fact run with the land in perpetuity, unless there are 
uh, limits on time that the zoning board may or may not uh, uh, attach to the permit. But so the answer is if you plan on having Philadelphia as your primary and still live in that building, you know, for that house for six months out of the year, you can go to easy route with a limited lodging permit. Otherwise, if you're going to, to another city and staying there and want to extend short-term rentals year-round, then you must go through the variance process uh, for most properties uh, and seek a variance for a visitor accommodation. That is very interesting. I didn't know really any of that. Tell me this, though. How... Okay, so let, let's say somebody gets this six-month version of, of this, right? Yeah. Limited lodging. Six-month li- limited lo- lodging deal. How how do you prove that you're there six months out of the year? Well, you don't, and that's the problem. Because what we're seeing a lot of these days are folks pulling these limited lodging permits in places like Fishtown and especially Northern Liberties where um, it seems to be a more transient sort of community, uh, no real long-term residents. Um, and what they do is they move on to other cities, but they use that limited lodging and they end up offering their, uh, their properties almost year round. And, and, and that's a problem. And it's up to the immediate neighbors if there are issues, and there uh, often are, uh, to enlist the assistance of the Department of License and Inspection or an attorney uh, to, uh, to hold that owner uh, accountable. Right. So maybe another way to read this question is, Hello, Vern. I would like to continue gentrifying my neighborhood and also drive my neighbors crazy. <laughs> How do I do that, baby? <laughs> well, you right. You do it by uh, by getting a limited lodging um, uh, permit, and then uh, under the guise of limited lodging, uh, basically run a mini hotel twelve months out of the year to the detriment of your neighbors. Yeah. Yeah. So, listener, you now have uh, Vern's answer. Producer Joe's answer is take a long, hard look at your choices. (laughs) And also, why New York now? (laughs) Right. If if, if anything, folks in New York are moving here. We we Uh, won. (laughs) Next question. Um, this is this is interesting. Uh, this would seem to be a question from a developer. Hard to tell, like you know, big or little, what what their deal was. But it, it definitely seems seems like it's coming from the perspective of a developer. And that person asks, "I have a zoning variance appeal to the zoning board administration coming up, and just returned from the required community meeting. They tore me up and will oppose this project. Is it worth going to the hearing at this point?" It could be, um, certainly. Um, I would be lying if I said uh, a good portion of the cases I bring before the zoning board have complete support from the community and we still win because we you can win a variance without the support of the community. 
but sometimes you have to do a couple, you know, a couple of things that are not necessarily in the, um, the instructions that uh, the city of Philadelphia gives you. Uh, and you may have to go a little, you know, the extra mile to, uh, to show that you're worthy of the, of the zoning relief. So again, it's, it's neighborhood specific, it's case specific. And I would recommend speaking to someone, either a, a reputable expediter or a zoning attorney who might be able to give you some ideas on what you might be able to do to overcome the opposition from the registered community organization. Because at the end of the day, we don't necessarily know how many folks that night showed up who actually live within 300 feet of your property. They may live on the other side of your neighborhood, many, you know, half a mile away. Uh, so there are ways in which we can uh, sort of drill down on that RCO process and that uh, disposition of the official community organization to see whether or not there's ways around it. And that's also an interesting and kind of begs another question, Vern. You know, I'm, I'm a lifelong Philadelphian, so are you. We have all throughout our lives seen projects happen where uh, the neighborhood that's against it, the na- neighborhood is vocally against it, and then it happens anyway. When a developer does, you know, kind of get one past the goalie in this way, w- what are the things that that usually make the ZBA be like, okay, well, the neighbors are against it, but like, what are the, yeah, what kind of criteria is that does does that typically fall along? Right. Okay. Well, if the registered community organization, the, you know, the official group, uh, sends a letter of opposition or has or is testifying in opposition, uh, then one of the first things we do is say, well, they base that opposition on a meeting. And that meeting had attendees. And if few or no immediate neighbors to the project were present, uh, then those immediate neighbors uh, need to be reached out to. Uh, And oftentimes what we'll do is we'll develop uh, a petition and circulate that petition door to door so that everyone who lives within earshot of the project gets to see what we're proposing gets to see the relief we're seeking. And if they sign up on a petition or pen a letter of support, enough of those immediate neighbors can certainly outweigh uh, the opposition of a registered community organization that may not have had too many immediate neighbors represented at that meeting. So that's the first thing. The second thing uh, at the end of the day, and you know, and I find myself saying this often at zoning hearings during the theater of it all, is that at the, this is not a popularity contest. We are practicing urban planning. And as nice and as thoughtful and as concerned as a community group might be, uh, they they're not urban planners more often than not. They're not architects. They're not um, traffic engineers. So if we're able to bring experts in planning, in real estate, in traffic, to not necessarily debunk some of their claims in opposition, 
but instead to offer testimony that demonstrates what we're proposing, even though it may not be the code, uh, is in fact proper planning principles uh, before the zoning board. And if we can do that through expert testimony, uh, then the planning commission is more likely than not going to recommend that the zoning board grants the proposal irrespective of what the community is saying. If you can take, if you can take the lawyer part out of you for, for, for a moment, for a moment, you know, with, with, with sure. like tons of yeah. experience, do, do you think that process is equitable? Yeah. Absolutely. The last people who should be designing traffic patterns and neighborhoods are a bunch of volunteers who, you know, are just not schooled in proper planning. Right. I mean, like we did a whole episode about uh, the Washington Avenue thing and, and, you know, and it seemed like, you know, from every angle, there were so many cooks in the kitchen on that, that nobody came out happy on that deal. Right. Right. Uh, because, because politics of course has to play a part when you've got 10 separate kingdoms in the city of Philadelphia called districts, you know, city council districts. And so there's constituencies that weigh in and a district council person has to handle and manage that. But the bigger picture, not that neighbors and community groups don't sometimes get it right because they do. Uh, But for instance, Society Hill lobbied their district council person so that no multifamily dwellings can be proposed as a matter of right in Society Hill. Uh, That's not only racist and um, uh, uh, biased against people of modest means, um, but it sets up a scenario where an entire community has decided they're the urban planners and all they want is single family homes. Um, so that's not city living, uh, at least not healthy city living. Um, and you have the same sort of mentality, although not through legislation, up in Chestnut Hill, where you have these large mansions, for lack of a better word, uh, that uh, folks w- want to purchase and maybe divide into four three bedroom, two and a half bath homes, like condominiums, keeping the mansion facade, but just dividing it interior so that four families can live comfortably at a, you know, at a purchase price of $750,000 per unit, instead of someone having to buy a $4 million mansion and trying to maintain it in, you know, today's day and age. Uh, But there's pushback on that from the local neighbors. They'd rather have an empty mansion than someone who might be able to afford a three-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bath, $750,000 home uh, that happens to be one of four in that mansion. So it ends up being, it's excluding people, uh, and it it ends up being just uh, the opposite of what ultimate urban living is supposed to be. And so, no, I do not put a whole lot of stock in the whims of the local 
average citizen when it comes to proper zoning and planning. let them eat pretzels <laughs> let them eat hoagies <laughs> well hoagies uh wait twinkies <laughs> right or tasty cakes or something well like you know that. Th that question shook a lot of different issues open i like so it, it was a really good one so thank you uh listener um but just to kind of keep everything on pace uh the direct dance the, the well Next hold question. on just just so 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 we can take it back okay. to, to the front the direct answer to the listener's original question about you know neighborhood tore me up should i still go to the zba meeting go it ain't over till it's over Abs All right. absolutely uh, get some help if you can uh not necessarily has doesn't have to be me, but get some help. But yeah, you should go. Okay. Next up, we got one that's a little bit lighter uh, and 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 probably a, a, a simpler a, a answer here for you, Vern. Um, and I think something that this reminds me of one that we had maybe answered in a previous episode. But I love questions like this. So the listener says, "Hello, I recently purchased some land in Nice Town Tioga. Would it be legal to live in a trailer home on that land?" I own the land after all. What do you say, Vern? Right. And you would think, hey, I own the land. Why the heck not? Right. Uh, unless that property is zoned for uh, vehicle parking, then unfortunately, no, the mobile home is going to be treated as a vehicle. Uh, and if the property is zoned for RSA 5, residential single family development, or any sort of residential uh, uh, use, you're going to have to go through the process of getting a zoning relief so that you could drive up onto the lot and, uh, well, and wait, though, this person is saying a trailer home, which I think is different. It's not an RV. It's like a trailer park home, which really, you know, once, once it comes to the trailer park, it just, you know, it gets put up on blocks and it, and it, and it doesn't move again. Is it, does That's the same correct. thing still but hold? It does because it has wheels and it's treated like an auto. You know, you don't get a deed for a trailer home. You get title, like from the Department of Motor Vehicles. Uh, and, and for that reason, uh, yes. You'd have to get the zoning relief. Now, there is a thing called manufactured homes, which is completely different, never on wheels. Each floor is created at a factory. And then a crane, you know, obviously a contractor, will take floor by floor, put them on, one, on, one, on top of one another. And uh, it looks like a traditional brick facade three-story uh, Philadelphia row home, you'd never be able to tell the difference. Uh, that's a completely different story. That right. you can do. Uh, but, but but in order to get a, a mobile home with wheels onto the lot and to live there, uh, you would need to get it approved for uh, vehicle parking. There you have it. All right, next up. Um, th this one I think is a little bit more of a... Uh, of an opinion question for you, Vern. I, 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 if, if I'm reading it right, then it is a, um, then it is a kind of yes or no answer type of thing. Apartments are getting so expensive these days, the listener says, 
And with interest rates so high, owning a home is getting more and more difficult. I know some districts in the city now have mandatory affordable units for new construction projects. Can zoning laws or any laws help with housing affordability? That's a great question. Um, and I, I actually, I remember how I answered this when I first got it uh, in the email. Uh, there are two areas of the city, uh, sort of the Kensington, uh, uh, West Kensington area and uh, West Philadelphia that now have mandatory uh, rules on affordable housing being part of larger developments. Uh, the problem is since those overlays were put in place over a year ago, practically no affordable housing units have been created in either of those places uh, by the uh, private sector. So um, it seems as though these mandatory requirements are a disincentive, seems, uh, as a disincentive for people to build. Um, do I think the law and the code could be used uh, more efficiently and more effectively to promote affordable housing? Absolutely. We still have close to 30,000 vacant lots that are owned by the city of Philadelphia vacant properties that just lay fallow uh, that were supposed to be uh, uh, taken by the land bank and or the redevelopment authority and put into the hands of people who could build something with them. Um, so I think you could use that mechanism to uh, perhaps give that property, give those properties to developers or to investors in exchange for the affordable options uh, that so many folks need. The other thing I think we could, I'd like to be able to rely on is the market itself. Uh, the most affordable units in the city of Philadelphia are the traditional trinities, right? Uh, we were doing tiny homes 300 years ago in the city of Philadelphia. They were the father, sons, and holy ghost houses of Queen Village uh, and, and, and uh, Old City. So I think if we start to build smaller products and more of them, that will hopefully flood the market with product and exceed the need for affordable housing, which would then bring those prices down. At least in theory, that's uh, what we'd like to see. But there are ways that the code and city policy, just through the, the, the tens of thousands of properties that the city already owns, could in fact activate for affordable uh, uses. Problem is, again, 10 district councils, uh, 10 district council people, uh, 10 kings in 10 different kingdoms with 10 different rules. Uh, so un unless or until we actually tackle councilmanic privilege as it relates to development in the city of Philadelphia, it's going to be difficult to have a citywide, cohesive, um, a, a predictable, affordable housing policy. Well, we have pretty much a brand new city council, so you never know. Just, just a sidebar. I, I, 
uh, you talked about the great Philly uh, Trinity houses. Uh, I'm, I'm re- we're recording from one of them today. Uh, I, I live in an, in an overgrown Trinity, um, basically. Uh, and it is one of the unique architectural elements of, of the city. And I have not seen a lot of them in other cities that I've gone to. In your work, do you see any developers around the city kind of trying to like, I'm, I'm curious what a 2024 version of a father, son, Holy, Holy ghost house would look like. Have you seen any projects like that? I've seen uh, lots of one bedroom units and two bedroom units uh, in a multi-unit building. So I think that's, uh, that's, that's the Trinity of tomorrow and of today is the uh the apartment building or even it's or you know can condo it pretty easily but it's the multi-family dwelling i think is is the trinity of tomorrow uh, because i think the sheer scale of it could still make it a, a worthwhile endeavor for the developer or the investor um, and um you know i i, I think it's uh, also a more attractive product for young people, uh, you know, uh, folks in their 20s and 30s uh, who would prefer to live in a two-bedroom apartment with a doorman and a gym and a roof deck that's green so their dog could run uh, and more amenities than the traditional uh, trinity of um, the 17th century. I don't know. I mean, for, for me, the appeal is is the windy steps on which I know I will one day die, the sense that, uh, you know, <laughs> at, at, at any night of the week, I may be visited by three ghosts. Uh. <laughs> right. But, but, we're, but we're not the market, right? We're not the, we're not the buyer <laughs> these days, right? We're kind of, we're a middle-aged man, yeah. let's be honest. Uh, um, the 20-year-olds and I think even the 30-year-olds, the... I, uh, as cool as ghosts and windy <laughs> stairs might be, uh, uh, that's why you see places like Lincoln Square uh, filling up with all these uh, young people, these Gen Zers, and um, because they have a ton of amenities, yet relatively small and modest living spaces. I hope they learn the true meaning of Christmas. Next question. Uh I appreciate the honesty of, of, of this rogue who wrote in. I received a violation for an addition I put on my house, and I need to legalize it through a zoning variance. If you start the process, will that stop the fines from accruing while we go through the variance process? So for the listener, I know, what, I know Vern knows what this means. For the listener, we should clarify. This is somebody who just went ahead and did it. They put the addition on their house, and then they got dinged for it after the fact. That's correct. Yeah. What happens? And now they got a yeah. violation. Yeah. Then they get their well, their neighbor calls on them, <laughs> which is what starts all this. And uh, L and I comes out and gives them a violation. Now they're facing fines that could accrue on a daily, uh, and. The violation is that, you know, it was done uh, improperly and without, you know, uh, outside the code and they need zoning first, first off. Uh, And so they come to us and they say, hey, you know, okay, legalize my rear uh, addition 
that ate up most of my yard. Uh, and then we can fix this, right? Well, sort of. Uh, the question is, will that process that I begin seeking zoning relief, will that sort of, sort of hold off the compliance action? Uh, and in the old days, there was sort of a gentleman's agreement, uh, especially with lawyers and uh, folks at L&I that, hey, if I'm dropping an application to get this thing legalized, just lay off for a while, right? Give us some time. It was a very um, gentlemanly-like way of, of, of handling it. At some point, however, that no longer uh, became the case. And now there's something you have to do in addition to saying, okay, Mr. Lawyer, go through the zoning process to get my uh, addition approved with zoning relief. The other thing you have to do is appeal that violation. And that violation does not get appealed through the zoning board. No, that violation gets appealed directly to the LNI review board, LIRB. If you don't appeal that violation, that compliance violation to the LIRB, then yes, you run the risk of those fine, those violations turning into fines and those fines turning into daily fines for the next 9, 10, 11 months until I get through zoning. And you don't want that. So it's critical as soon as you get a violation to either appeal it yourself or get it to an attorney or someone who can help you appeal it because like any appeals, you only have a certain amount of time to do it. And if it's 30 days after that violation uh, is dated, then we've got problems. You mentioned something at the top of that question that I have always been curious about that, you know, the reason this, this person got dinged was because a neighbor reported them in your experience, do you have kind of a bird's eye view on how many uh, L&I violations like this begin as 311 complaints from neighbors? You know, I only have anecdotal evidence, but I would say a good 75%. I would say two thirds. Yeah, because L&I, because of their limited staff, because of their limited resources, and I guess because of their limited budget, and this was something we touched on with episode two of this season's uh, podcast on the Crumbling City series, L&I is complaint-driven for the most part. So if they're not getting complaints, you know, chances are they're not going to get you unless you're in a very high profile area of town where it's just impossible to ignore. So so I would say 75%, again, anecdotally, uh, are generated by folks complaining, be it neighbors on the block, or maybe the neighbors contacted their council person and the council person calls in. Uh, But that's typically how these things start. 
snitching culture is alive and well in Philadelphia. <laughs> well, yeah. Don't be don't be fooled. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, and snitching is sort of like you know, there's a negative connotation to that because, you know, why are you busting this guy's chops because he's putting on a deck or something like that. But at the same time, it can really be a health of and course. safety issue, not ju- not just for the neighbor, but for the people living in that house. Because if that if that addition wasn't uh, wasn't put on with proper building permits, and it and it wasn't, uh, then we don't know uh, if that thing is going to be standing right. in a year. Uh, and you don't want somebody to right, and hurt. also the so, fact remains, especially as pertains to construction in a whole bunch of neighborhoods around the city, there are folks who are just exhausted by all of the construction and have already seen lots of nightmare scenarios um from a flipper or even big developers just doing stuff the wrong way. Yep. Next listener question. I just secured a zoning use permit for a daycare center and I have it all furnished and ready to go. Can I open immediately? You you would think, right? Uh, But no. Uh, After the zoning process and you get, you know, we hand you the zoning permit. That's great. That means your use is, is on par and you're good to go with respect to the use. But before you can operate and occupy, you're gonna need what they call a CO or a certificate of occupancy. And that review done by the building code examiners at the Department of License and Inspection will ensure that your daycare center uh, meets all the building code requirements, has all the necessary egresses and ingresses, has sufficient uh, uh, fire mitigation systems um, and uh, is, in fact, the safest possible space uh, that you can offer in that particular you know, building uh, before you can open. Once you have your certificate of occupancy, then and only then are you able to operate as the daycare center. Can't get the CO without first getting your zoning permit. Okay, we got one here that I'm going to run by you. I kind of don't even want you to give this guy an answer. I just want to get your reaction to the question. (laughs) Hi, my name is Blankety Blank. I'm looking at two multifamily buildings that are being sold together off market in the Squirrel Hill area of Philly. They are two triplexes on two separate lots, both zoned as CMX2. There is no evidence in the archive of variance granite for the two three-family dwellings. Could you give me an evaluation on the likelihood of success of getting the variance since they are already built out as two triplexes? P.S. I need you to do this evaluation without me giving you the addresses. I want to keep this on the DL since it's an (laughs) off-market opportunity. Sound good? I'm going to answer it exactly the way I replied to this email. Um, no, it sounds stupid. <laughs> is what I, how could you possibly ask a zoning professional or a planning professional or you know, anyone dealing with, uh, with this sort of issue to come up with a blanket answer 
when I don't even know where these properties are. Uh, zoning is is parcel specific. You know, it's not just what council district the property is in. It's not even what neighborhood a property is in. It's what block is it on? Is it on the corner? Is it in the middle? Is it an, on a block with a ton of tiny little two-story single family homes? Or is it on a block with one multifamily after another? Does the state representative live between right. your two properties? <laughs> uh, you know, and is a real busybody, you know? Uh, so there are lots of reasons to ask for the addresses. And when I did ask, uh, I, you know, I was pretty clear that without property addresses, there's absolutely no help we could give them. And I also reminded this person that when they reach out to an attorney and they just, you know, want some information or uh, some guidance or spitballing, whatever it is, whatever we talk about is privileged. It's completely protected by attorney-client privilege, even if I decide not to take the case. Or even if I say I'll take the case and the guy finds some other lawyer to do it, you know, cheaper or, or whatever, uh, it doesn't matter. The bottom line is once we speak about it, I can't talk to anybody about it. The point is once you've talked to an attorney, even if we never become uh, uh, build that relationship between lawyer and client, what you've told me stays with me. I certainly can't share it with anybody else. I got another one here for you, Vern. It's somebody just complaining about parking. Do you even want this one? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I hear it almost every night when uh, I'm at a community meeting, so why right. not? This wasn't written by my mother, but it could have been written by my mother. <laughs> a big apartment, and, and, and I'm going to have the good taste to not do it with hoagie mouth. Um, a, a big apartment building is going up in my neighborhood in past young square with no off street parking. All these apartments are being built without dedicated off street parking spots, 50 units on Ridge Avenue without any parking requirements, 99 units in North Philly without parking requirements. I think larger apartment buildings should be required to offer off street parking. Why can't this happen? Well, Parking is definitely an issue. I always like to start off with that. Um, the fact of the matter is, depending on the zoning classification, parking is required sometimes in a multifamily situation. Uh, however, there are other considerations. First off, transit-oriented um, development. If this 50-unit apartment building is within two blocks of the Broad Street line or the Market Frankfurt line, then I think the Planning Commission and most urban uh, professionals and traffic engineers and, 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 and folks who do this for a living certainly will encourage, if not hope, that many of the people living in those 50 units are going to be availing themselves to public transportation. Now, obviously, we can get into just how good or not so great SEPTA is, and that could always be a better product. But 
I think the idea of transit-oriented uh, development uh, really does help urban areas grow and grow positively. Uh, also, if those 99 units in North Philadelphia or those 50 units on Ridge Avenue did have parking, let's say, let's say a developer decided to do park off-street parking, and because there are constrictions on the land, all of that parking is underground. I mean, it can be done. Uh, an architect friend of mine, he always says, well, you're asking me, can it be done? Of course, almost anything can be done, right? But at what cost? Because it's going to be incredibly expensive to set aside and or to build parking for a 50-unit or a 99-unit apartment building. And what do you think the developer or the investor is going to make sure they do? They're going to add that cost to the rent of the unit. So in a city where folks are already concerned about the affordability of apartments and condominiums, having these parking requirements, off-street parking requirements for every unit will ultimately only force these units to be even more out of reach to more people in the city right. of Philadelphia. You can't have it both ways. And I also think that, you know, as a Philly lifer and also as a person, you know, getting to be a certain age, I also see a generational difference that I wish my fellow Gen Xers and, and boomers would see also is that, is that millennials, Gen Zs, they are done with your cars. You know, like they're, they're not really buying them as, as much. It's not a priority. And I think that there's a sort of like both a generational and cultural difference that sees all these that sees all these young people moving into the city and being like, well, where are they all going to park? And it's like, dude, they're not, (laughs) they don't have cars. They can't afford cars because of, you know, uh, late stage capitalism and the nature of inherited wealth in America between uh, the generations of the boomers and everybody else. (laughs) Agreed. I mean, I, as an Xer, you know, I can't, I couldn't imagine uh, when, when I built my home 24 years ago, I couldn't imagine not making sure I had a, a garage or a parking spot, you know, for my car. Uh, but today I'm a father of uh, two Gen Zers, an 18-year-old and a 20-year-old. One lives in South Philadelphia, the other in University City. No interest, zero interest in even owning or driving an automobile. Uh, and when they leave college and get their first home or, or condo or apartment, uh, a place to put their car is just not going to be an issue because they don't even want one. Right. It's a, right. It's which a which, whole I, other which world. I think to folks our age and older is unfathomable unless you're actually out here walking around in the world and seeing it. Yep. I mean, at, at first I was, a you know, I was like, what? But, you know, but it's not only them. I you know, nephews who are 23 live in Fishtown, no car. I mean, be- between bike share and Uber and public transport, uh, they save an awful lot of money on that car note and insurance. And uh, 
that's not necessarily no. a bad thing. Uh, last question. I think bef before we before we get to the last one, I want to say. I think we've we've helped a lot of people here today. <laughs> well, that's what it's all about. I mean, I hope I, I hope that we have. <laughs> um, you you you've certainly illuminated me, and and I'm your producer. So, last question: well, You've spent you two full seasons asking your guests where they like to go for the ultimate meal in Philly. What about you? Where do you go? You know, I've, this is I've actually had this, people email me this question at least. A half a dozen times, um, for whatever reason, uh, and I have never answered it. I've always ignored it. So, uh, but you know, I, I'm of um, I'm of the mind that you know it de depends on my mood. You know, but uh, you know if if it's baseball season and I want to go to a pub and watch the Phillies. Um, and there's, you know, six or seven different TV screens playing six or seven different, you know, games. Um, I'm going to belly up to uh, Nick's Old City Bar and Grill at Second and Market. Um, it It is a neighborhood pub in a sea of otherwise, uh, you know, tourist traps. Not all of them. There's, there's other couple good ones out there as well, but... You know, Old City is a place where tourists go to, you know, to do their thing. Uh, but there's no knuckleheads and uh, even less tourists that uh, that frequent that uh, Nick's uh, uh, Old City Bar and Grill. Now, if you say, hey, Vern, let's go to lunch or dinner, you know, not to watch, you know, a game, uh, then my go-to is always the Sansom Street Oyster House, uh, so long as you don't you know, you don't have a problem with seafood. And if you do, then it's got to be Butcher and Singer because, you know, their Butcher Burger and their Cobb Salad are as exceptional as their steak. So they're my, uh, solid, they're my picks for all uh, classics, places all to go solids, to eat. All classics. Absolutely. <laughs> Glad you like them, Joe. That's our special show today, folks. The phillyzoning.com inbox. I hope you enjoyed uh, some of the answers we had and the questions that came from you all. Until next time, have a great day. And check out phillyzoning.com if you have any other questions about zoning in the city of Philadelphia. Take good care.